Coming up. It's not about just making everyone fit in. It's about really creating an environment where people can stand out at the same time. Today on In Session, Leading the Judiciary, we're talking about actions leaders can take to build more inclusive and innovative teams. It turns out diversity alone isn't enough. The key, according to Stephanie K. Johnson, is to focus on two basic human needs, the need to be authentic and the need to belong. Leaders who do this successfully can increase productivity and create a more positive environment for everyone in the process. Stephanie K. Johnson is an associate professor at the University of Colorado Boulder's Leeds School of Business, where her teaching and research focus on the intersection of leadership and diversity and inclusion. Dr. Johnson holds the Andrea and Michael Leeds Research Fellowship, is the director of CU Boulder's Daniels Fund Ethics Initiative at Leeds, and is a 2020 CUE Boulder Rio Fellow. She consults with organizations around the world to create more inclusive leaders, focusing on evidence-based practice. She and her work have been featured on numerous media outlets, and she is a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review. Today we're talking with Dr. Johnson about her book, Inclusify, The Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams. Our host for today's episode is Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the FJC. Lori, take it away. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Stephanie, many court leaders want diverse teams, and we all know that diversity in teams leads to better outcomes, but that doesn't always happen. What gets in the way? Well, tons gets in the way. You know, we can... The most obvious answer is our unconscious biases um, often get in the way of us hiring the best person for the job, even though we say that's what we want. Um, But instead, we tend to hire people who maybe are more similar to ourselves or more similar to the prototype of people who might be in that role. And then even when we successfully do bring in diverse talent, oftentimes those folks leave. We see higher turnover rates for women, higher turnover rates for people of color, and among the highest rates for women of color, because when we bring people in, we don't always change the environment to be inclusive of those different folks that we've just worked so hard to recruit. Uh, So I think there's kind of a two-step process of one, really nailing down how to recruit, attract Um, the best people for the job, and then finding ways to make the environment one that's conducive to retaining them by being more inclusive. So how do leaders make that environment more inclusive once the candidate gets in the door? That is the question of the hour. I mean, that's really what Inclusify focuses on is, you know, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? And so maybe from a conceptual level, I really think of inclusion as is these two basic and essential human needs of uniqueness and belonging. So belonging, I think we get it. Everyone wants to feel like they belong. We've probably all felt like we don't belong at some point. And it's just like, it's just a bad feeling, right? You don't feel valued or accepted or like you can succeed. But then the other half of that is just as much as we want to belong. We want to be unique. That's part of the human condition. We're not ants or bees. We we like the fact that we have unique identities and it's it's that part that many organizational leaders are missing out on. It's 
how can you create an environment where people feel like they can be themselves in all of their unique glory? That's why you hired them, right? It was for their different perspective, but they need to have an environment where they feel safe to share that perspective. And so I have a lot of tactics to get there. But I think from a conceptual level, if you can understand or wrap your mind around the fact that it's not about just making everyone fit in, it's about really creating an environment where people can stand out at the same time. And you call that inclusify, right? That's that's a word you coined. I'm fascinated by this concept of inclusify. It, to me, it's a verb. It implies action. So how can we shift as leaders into that mindset of becoming inclusifiers? The fact that you point out it's a verb, it points to one of really what I was trying to get at, and that is that it's an action and it's a conscious, intentional, and ongoing sustained effort to create an inclusive environment. Because even if you created the most inclusive environment in 1990, the ground below you has shifted and that environment would no longer be inclusive to new identities that are in the workplace, right? We think of even just generational differences and what millennials and Gen Zers expect. So it means you have to keep working at it. I would say it's just like leadership. If you were a great leader in the 1990s and you were still doing the exact same thing today, in many ways, you're what you're doing would be obsolete, right? You have to keep growing and developing. I think that we just embrace that and let go of the fear of getting it wrong. No one is ever going to be the perfect inclusive leader. It's just something we all need to keep working at. So can you talk about culture and communication as aspects of things that that impact uh, a leader's ability to be inclusive? So much of our culture is actually shaped by the words that we use. And so you know, if rather than starting an event with hello, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, you know, you can be more inclusive of non-binary identities by saying, you know, welcome friends or um, welcome colleagues or whatever it might be. But just making small changes to your language that are going to be more inclusive to the people in the room. Uh, another thing about communication is the more senior you are as a leader, the less we focus on listening and the more we focus on talking. Like you have the ideas, you're forming the strategy, you're giving the vision. And that's great. That's, you know, that's what leaders do. And we forget to work on that other half of communication, which is listening to other people's perspectives. And the one of the big drivers of feeling included is the belief that your ideas are heard and utilized and so if leaders can invest more in that that side of the communication process, um, they can actually create a more inclusive environment. And I think that really scales up to your question about culture uh, because, yes, the leader can do it, but do other people exhibit the same behavior and do, you know, operate in an environment where we really work to get different perspectives out? Our goal isn't just to get everyone to agree and everyone's using that more inclusive language as we communicate um, because the, you know, the leader is one person, but all of the, the rest of the people around us and the, the tone and the feeling of the room is that's what culture is. What came to my mind is the word curiosity and being more curious and maybe even empathetic as a leader. What if curiosity and empathy aren't your default? I see empathy as really the most important leadership skill, especially right now with all of the you know crises and the need to focus on team members' mental health, 
We need empathy. But one of the ways to get empathy is to be curious and learn about other people. And there's big differences in how curious some people are naturally um, and how much people want to know about other humans. Like I'm super interested in people. Like I, that's why I studied humans, right? Uh, my husband's a biologist, so he maybe doesn't ask as many questions, but you can exhibit the behavior just asking the questions and, you know, mimic those people you see who are really curious. Um, try to find out about what makes other people tick. You can make it a scientific exercise, right? To try to learn more about people, not to solve their problems or not to judge them, but just to learn for the sake of understanding. And I think if you do that, it will start to increase that curiosity because people are just interesting and who wouldn't want to know more about them? So let's take it to the individual level for a moment. How do individuals feel when their leaders take an interest in them versus how do they feel when that doesn't happen? What does your research show? The research would say that people feel more valued and respected when they feel like others know that when they feel like they can be themselves, we're really at our best, right? Like we can perform our best when you feel seen and heard and understood. That my only little caveat, and maybe if you hear like a little asterisk in my tone, is that to, in order for that to work, I think there has to be a foundation of like some type of psychological safety or reciprocity because I have seen in the, you know, especially in the last two years, I've worked with lots of organizational leaders on these topics. And some of them go at it like, I okay, learned. I'm supposed to ask people about their personal lives and identity. And then as I often interview teams, right, they're like, for some reason, my boss has started interrogating me. I think <laughs> he wants to find out or she wants to find out if I'm working. So they're trying to figure out if I have children at home or I don't know what their motive is because they keep asking me these questions and I'm you know evasive, but they just keep pressing. And it just occurs to me that you know people have to understand like your intent and maybe a good way to start is if you share about yourself as a like foundation and be that takes vulnerability right to share about yourself um things that are you know acceptable to share it actually creates the space for other people to do the same so it doesn't just feel like your boss is somehow out to get you or you know trying to figure out um if you're doing your work all the time. <laughs> Let's say I'm skeptical because my boss or the leaders in my organization have never asked me anything really about myself uh, before. I mean, why shouldn't I be skeptical? That's totally fair. Um, actually, because of that, just that reality, I created this activity. It's on my website at drstephjohnson.com under resources. Everything's free to download. But they're, I call them empathy cards. And they are ways to broach this conversation or start conversations that maybe if you haven't had them before, feel awkward. And my favorites are those that are framed around re-entry uh, in, back into the workplace, back into the office um, following COVID-19. So if you're like, why are we asking this question now? It's because, well, we've all just been through this major life-changing crisis. Things are different. It's a useful time to get to know the way people are feeling and experiencing the workplace because of these changes. And so I think it gives you a nice entryway into starting to do this without it feeling inauthentic or maybe even scary uh, or invasive. And I think it's, we all had this shared experience. So it, it actually makes it really interesting to talk about because 
even though the situation was the same, people's experience of it is really different. Are there impacts on this kind of behavior for the organization as a whole or at the team level if we're sharing more about our true selves, for example? Yeah. I mean, what we see is when you get this right, people feel more willing to give different perspectives and ideas that are work-related. And the result is less groupthink, better decision-making, greater innovation. Uh, People are more engaged. They are less likely to want to leave and work elsewhere. And just the I think there's a a level of psychological um, strain of always monitoring your behavior and acting to try to fit in that's lifted. And so you can actually give your full attention to the job. And so the results, you know, if it's done right, I think are pretty compelling. So you mentioned psychological safety a little bit ago, and I know you mentioned in your book that there's that's important, but also we need to have a foundation in unconscious bias before we can really dig into become inclusifiers, if I, if I understand correctly. So how do we start to identify and counter our own biases so that we can be more inclusive? Yeah, unconscious bias is a tough one because, well, you know, we see from the data is, Sending people to unconscious bias training doesn't really have a huge effect on their behavior. Maybe it changes their awareness a little bit. I still think it's a useful step in the process, but it's by no means ever the last step, right? It's like you can gain awareness around your unconscious bias. Maybe better than going to training is to try to get to know people who are different from yourself, like closely identify and connect with someone who might be from a different racial or gender group so that you are actually breaking through the bias in a more natural way. It's like that identification with someone who's different. You talk in your book, and I, I liked this uh, way of thinking about it. It made sense to me. And, and so I wonder if you could, could um, explain it in a little more detail, the concept of tailwinds and headwinds. And if we focus on our own tailwinds, it can help us be more attuned to others' headwinds. And I hadn't, I hadn't heard it expressed that way. So can you share more? Yeah. I, so that's actually an idea I stole. Um, I, and I fully credit Dolly Chug in the book. She wrote um, a book called How to Be a Goodish Person. You know, like, we're not going to be perfect. but um, And she just, she framed it in that way. And I loved it. And it's just the idea that for all of us, there's things that might have helped us get ahead faster. And so that could be like, you know, coming from a wealthy family or, you know, being just like all the things that help you easily fit into society, you know, um, hetero, cisgender, uh, white appearing, um, female, maybe if you're a man, it's even, you even have more of that um, privilege. And if you can acknowledge those are the things that maybe those did help you get ahead just a little bit, you know, just a tiny bit at every step, then it might help you understand that for other people who might be a person from a different religion, different gender identity, someone who didn't grow up and uh, for the family with a lot of means that maybe those are things that it doesn't make them any less of, you know, the best candidate or the most talented individual, but just might've slowed down their progress a little bit. So they had a few extra twists and turns along the way to get to the same spot that might have been just a little bit easier for you. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, that ties into this concept of meritocracy. And we often hear the phrase, something like, well, we just want the best person for the job, or um, this is a meritocracy. And you you say that's a problem. Why? I'm not a big fan. Yeah. because I love meritocracy if it were real, but I guess there's two reasons. So one, this amazing researcher finds consistently that when you tell people to be meritocratic, it actually makes them more biased in favor of the majority. The other thing is, I think what we call meritocracy is isn't doesn't really reflect people's talent, right? Or like their effort or even their what they really achieved in life. Because I'll say lots of our students, you know, they have a fancy internship um, that doesn't pay them. But the students who have to earn money to pay for school can't take that internship. They're working a job, right, that pays them. So I think just being more intentional about what is the actual characteristic we're trying to get. If it is hiring, I just want to hire people who who check the boxes, then like that's really easy. But I would argue you're not actually getting the best talent. Look at someone who I call them jets in the book, but um, who ended up in the same place in terms of, you know, career progression, but went to a junior college, worked the whole time, paid for it. Like that person, when they have the same success as someone who maybe had an easier path, I think they also have some added strengths that might be worth considering, like resilience and grit. And they must really, really want this because they were willing to work that hard for it. And I know it's more work to do that. But if you if you care about capturing the best talent and creating equity in society, I think it's worth it. So sometimes those individuals who've had some headwinds, as, as you put it in the book, sometimes that can really be advantageous to add to your workplace. Is that what I'm hearing? That's yeah. I think that that sums it up really well <laughs> in in a very concise way. I think that's I think we would all want that. And I think it, you know, we got to be careful not to say just because someone might look like a tailwind person, like you might make assumptions about someone and be like, oh, okay, well, he's a you know, white male who went to Stanford. He hasn't had headwinds. Like you really don't know that to be true. I think you actually have to do the work and you might find out he paid for that education himself. You know, he had a disability or, you know, whatever it is. But I I actually try to put questions in interviews and job hiring and promotion selection um, processes that try to get at this. And, you know, universities do it all the time, but um, have people overcome a challenge, whatever that challenge was for them in order to get to the point they're at today. Stephanie, you talk about the distinction between equality and equity or fairness. So help us understand the distinction between those. There's two rules that I just questioned. So one is fair is treating everyone the same. And I think from a leadership perspective, it's not. It's about giving everyone what they need to be successful. And so if you are a person who has a hearing impairment, you may receive additional Uh, equipment to help you do your job. Would would you give that equipment to everyone else? No, that makes no sense, right? And that's what equity is, is getting to know your people and figuring out what do they need to be successful and then giving it to them. The other one is the golden rule of just like treat people how you want to be treated. And I feel like 
that's kind of a mistake too. I think that I'm going to go with like the platinum rule is treat people how they want to be treated. And both of those things of giving people what they need to be successful and treating them how they want to be treated actually means you have to know someone. And so that's why I think we get to the foundation is like really empathy and getting to know people. I know leaders sometimes have to navigate the perception of unfairness if everyone isn't treated the same. So what would you say to those leaders? I think it is, I'm giving everyone the opportunity to be successful. If there's something that you are not getting that you need to be successful, please tell me. I want to know and I will provide that to you. What's important from a leadership perspective is elevating everyone on your team. And so maybe that means giving people different opportunities But the end goal is the greater good, right? Everyone has the same chance for success. And as a leader, that's your goal, right? Like you want people to be promoted up, not walking out the door. You talk about aggressive transparency. I, I loved that phrase and I want you to explain it a little bit more. It's so much because of all of the questions that you're asking right now is why we need the aggressive transparency. Because there are a lot of folks right now who feel like, well, this isn't fair. This diversity program isn't for me. I don't have these opportunities. Why do certain folks get mentors? I don't, I didn't get a mentor. And, and I think because we're all kind of sheepish around this topic, like, oh, it's uncomfortable to talk about it. People assume, sometimes they assume the worst. If someone gets a job, a promotion, you think it's, oh, they just promoted them because of their identity, right? So I think that requires us to be even more transparent. It's not just like the aggressive transparency is like, yeah, sure, people could probably find out this information if they really searched. But instead, it's actually actively trying to tell people. We have found that because the majority of our senior leaders are men and because point two, people tend to mentor others who are similar to themselves, we find our women have fewer mentors. Therefore, we are creating additional mentoring opportunities for women to give them an you know, opportunity that they may not have. If there are men in the room who don't have a mentor and would like to engage in this, by all means, please sign up. But just like really being transparent about what you're doing and why. And you know, maybe there's things you're missing. Maybe someone in the room says, well, I'm a man, but I am an Asian male and I don't there are no Asian male leaders in this company and we don't have mentors. And then you're like, oh, great. Thanks for telling me that. We can fix that. And so in being transparent, you actually might find other kind of blind spots um, of opportunities to create greater equity and really help elevate all your people, right? Um, But instead, people hear about it kind of behind closed doors and just assume the worst, right? So I think we have to be transparent that If this is true for you, diversity and inclusion is important to you. You can state that and what you're doing about it and how what you're doing is fair in the sense that majority group members aren't going to get left behind, right? You're just trying to elevate everyone together. It sounds like there a certain amount of friction is okay. And one of the concepts in your book I really liked was the idea of designing for dissension and almost building in some of that friction or... um, low-level conflict, if you will. I don't know if I have that right. What is designing for dissension and why do you think we should try it? Yeah. Designing for dissension is the idea of in-group meeting settings or discussions, trying to get different ideas out on the table. And 
Maybe that even requires you to choose a devil's advocate, someone who's going to, you know, question the norms in the group. When you have a group that's really focused on belonging and fitting in and everyone being the same, sometimes it's hard to get people to voice the different side, right? To give the disagreeing opinion. So you actually have to set it up so that people give the different perspective. And I go through like a few steps to do that. And I I think we can even do it more effectively, honestly, in remote settings to make sure each person's contributing, to make sure we're not speaking over each other. And then at each step, focusing on, well, what's the what's the dissenting opinion? Even if you don't disagree, tell me what what could we be missing here? And then thanking people for doing so. Like, well, thanks for giving the different different side because there's so much lost human capital because people don't think that the boss wants to hear the dissenting view, right? It's much easier just to come to an agreement and call it a day. But then you get these horrible outcomes and groupthink and bad decision-making that could have been avoided if you had just gotten people to, like someone knows that that, that's a mistake, right? They just aren't telling you. And it sounds like sometimes, you know, when you come to a really quick decision, that might be the time when you really need to ask the question. Absolutely. Yeah, either they haven't thought about it Right. Or they all share the same bias. And so that's why it seemed like a really good idea to everyone. So that's the case when I say when everyone agrees, I start out and say, okay, it looks like everyone agreed on this. Can someone go through and give me reasons why this wouldn't work? Like, let's challenge ourselves a little bit and try and poke some holes in this idea because we have extra time because everyone agreed. Sometimes you end up at the same place, but at least you've added your idea. And sometimes you end up, you know, slightly improving your idea in some ways, right? Like, or, you know, if you can come up with this dissenting view, someone else is going to come up with it down the road. And when that person does, you have the answer for why that that's not a problem. So what else would you say to our audience? What else would you leave them with? Yeah, I think, you know, mentoring and sponsoring or sponsorship have a huge impact on people's careers. Every CEO will tell you the story of someone who stepped up for them and sponsored them and how that helped them get where they are, particularly for women and people of color and women of color. It just matters so much. So I think that's something small, but it has a big impact. And studies show this is the best part that mentoring someone, and I'll say in the study I'm thinking of, it was mentoring someone who was a different gender than you, has the same benefits to the mentor as it does to the mentee. So you get promoted, you know, you're more engaged, you're less likely to quit. It works both ways, right? Everyone's benefiting. So mentor someone new. And then I would say step out of your comfort zone for networking and try to recruit from maybe a a different group um, than you normally spend time with. And I think that's something that everyone can do. It helps with some of those other things of like, as you get to know these, as you get to know folks who are different from you, it starts to break down some of that unconscious bias and build empathy. And it just makes life more fun. Stephanie, I feel like I could talk to you all day. This has been so fun and interesting and really enlightening too. So thank you. And please tell us where we can learn more about you and your work. I have a website, inclusifybook.com and drstephjohnson.com that has tons of free resources and just you know a YouTube channel with videos and Lots of things if you want to just invest in your own inclusive leadership. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Dr. Stephanie Johnson. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. 
Thanks, Lori, and thanks to our listening audience. To hear more episodes of this podcast, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn or simply subscribe to this podcast on your mobile device. In Session, Leading the Judiciary is produced by Shelley Easter. Our program is supported by Anna Glashkova and the entire studio and live production team. This podcast was produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Thanks for listening. Until next time.